Hi, Cherise here with a special announcement. You can now enjoy select episodes of Detailed in video form. That's right. Detailed is now available on RCAT's YouTube channel. Now, you may be thinking, I already listened to the podcast. No need to watch it on YouTube. Well, trust me, if you don't want to miss out, even if you're an avid listener of the podcast, the video format is a completely different experience. Not only is it like hanging out with us, but you also get to hear parts of the conversation that were left on the cutting room floor. You can also see the photos, drawings, and video as we discuss the incredible projects that are featured. Come join us on YouTube. Follow the link in our show notes, and let's get into the details. This is an original podcast by RCAT. Try the number one most used website for finding building product information and save time and money. No registration is required with RCAT, so try it today and get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com. You know, and I think in 10 years, we're still going to be trying to figure out how architecture can help with the whole problem of climate change. You know, we're, you know, that's a focus and a lot of people are serious about it and really focused and that's cool, you know, and, but, you know, we're still dealing with kind of a lot of tried and true methods and materials and industries and things that are slow to, you know, it's hard to change, you know, it's hard to change these things, hard to change how we make concrete and stuff like that, or how we move materials. So I think in 10 years, we're still going to be working on that. And hopefully, successfully, (laughs) you know, hopefully we will make it make a difference because I think architects want to. This is Detailed, an original podcast by RCAT. I am your host, Sharice Lakeside, Senior Specification Writer at RDH Building Science and fondly known as the CSI Kraken. We will speak with professionals who share their insights into the most complex, interesting, and odd building conditions and the ingenuity it took to make it work. Join me as I pull back the curtain on the building industry and uncover the lessons learned. You'll gain valuable knowledge to help you better navigate your next project. My guest today is Brett Baba, principal slash founder at Graham Baba Architects based in Seattle, Washington. Brett is a native of Washington State and attended the University of Washington with a Bachelor of Arts in Environmental Design and a Master of Architecture. Brett has worked at several architectural firms in Washington, New York, and Connecticut since 1978, most notably at Olson-Sunberg, where Brett met Jim Graham, and they formed Graham Baba Architects in 2006. The project we are chatting about today is the Washington Fruit and Produce Headquarters in Yakima, Washington. The building is a 16,500-square-foot commercial office-slash-headquarters that serves as a refuge from the surrounding industrial agribusiness landscape. Inspired by an abandoned wood barn, the structural frame of laminated wood buttresses creates a column-free interior faced in floor-to-ceiling glass. The sprawling domain of Washington Fruit and Produce Company, spanning 90 acres of industrial land, houses a technological marvel, a sophisticated array of sorting and packing equipment that dances to the rhythm of precision. Yet amidst the concrete tilt-up boxes, truck-laden pavements, and chilled repositories, 
company leaders craved a new office slash headquarters that would serve as a refuge from the industrial agribusiness landscape. The client is a fruit packing company in, in Yakima, Washington. And by the way, I grew up in Yakima, so that's partly why I did the project, but I think partly why it came out the way it did. And they have consolidated their their uh, operations to a campus, for lack of a better word, of about 100 acres in kind of uh, industrial land on the perimeter of, of Yakima. And there are these state-of-the-art fruit packing and shipping buildings. They're really quite amazing. They're all digital robotized, amazing. And they're all just classic concrete tilt-up, just gray walls, flat roofs, lots of pipes everywhere, lots of asphalt, no landscaping. You know, it's, it's kind of a grim environment. And the owner said to me, we spend our day in these buildings and walk around these buildings. We want to come back to our office and have it feel like a refuge, like, you know, just get away from that. And to that extent, we don't even want to see those buildings. We want to go to this place and not even know where we are. And so that, of course, was a big driving factor for how the, the building was, how it ended up. You know, we sunk it down very low. We built uh, earth berms around most of the building. There's a big, huge site wall. There's a big highway that runs next to the site, kind of loud and unpleasant. And so uh, if you look at the, the design of the building, there's a very large concrete wall on the north side. And that's buffering from the highway and, you know, that we have earth coming up that wall. So that's all burned. So you're kind of in this earth landscape, kind of a bowl almost, if you will, that just every view is curated. And then if you look across the highway and you look up, you see these beautiful basalt cliffs. They're, you know, classic Eastern Washington landscape, beautiful cliffs. So, you know, by doing that, getting ourselves low and having the berms around us and the landscaping, you know, it forces the eye up over the top and then, you know, you're really seeing that and not what's down below. So that that was really the goal. And then it means that it's an inwardly focused building, of course. So there's a landscape courtyard in the middle and the spaces all look into that. They kind of surround it. So it's very much an inwardly focused building. We also organize the inside of the building in such a way that all the employees are on that big a 14-foot high glass wall on the north side of the building. They're up against that. And then there are private offices, but they're on the south side. So we kind of gave preferential treatment to the, to the employees. So they're sitting in this beautiful glass wall facing north, looking into the landscape. So, you know, we did our best to create a really lovely working environment for them. Washington Fruit and Produce Company is a family-owned business run by the Plath family. Entrusted to helm this visionary voyage was Rick Plath, president of the company and a man of few words. There's an old saying in the industry that the best client is the one that brings the fewest people to a meeting. And so I think that a lot of success of this project is because it was one individual, you know, really working with, with us, a very small team on our side. So there weren't that many people. So that sort of vision was, it remained pretty pure out throughout the project. And so, you know, being a man of few words, I said, well, Rick, what do you want this building to be like? You know, you've told me what you don't want. You don't want concrete. You don't want flat roofs and, and you don't want industrial. What do you want? And he said, get in the car. So we took me on about a 20 minute drive out, outside of town. We didn't talk on the trip. And he pulls up to this, this farm and he points to this barn and he says, that's what I like. And I was shocked, like this. And it was this old barn you know, kind of decaying, 
some of the siding had fallen away. You could see through the building. All the wood was black, you know. But the, one of the remarkable things to me was you could look inside the building because so much of it was just fallen away. And you could see all the timbers. The timber frame of the building was exposed. And then all those knee braces and all those wood timber elements that, you know, to me it was like, well, you really understand the forces in a building because when they were built that way, it's such an honest use of these members. There was no engineering calculation done. You know, it was just common sense and understanding what it takes to keep something from tipping over. And I love that about it. I also realized, okay, we're not going to be doing a flat roof. You know, this has a gable. You know, the wood has texture. It has warmth. And so those are kind of where the takeaways. And what that kind of led to for me was thinking about, okay, we're going to do this expressed wood timber frame. That could be really neat. Why don't we make it an exoskeleton? Why don't we express that on the outside of the building? And that led me to thinking about the building as kind of a barn in some state of decay. And so if you kind of look at it from above, you know, it's sort of like, I think of it as like a barn where the middle of it has has collapsed and fallen away. And so the building is in L shape. And then, as I said, there's the site wall on, on one side. So I can kind of imagine that wall being a wall that was still standing. And then these bits of building, like the lunchroom and you know, they're still there, but, and some of the timber frame is left, but the walls have fallen away. And then at, at the locations where things have decayed, that's where we put the glass walls. So that metaphor for me was pretty strong in terms of sort of formation of the site plan and the building massing. So it was cool. You know, it was just like one thing. The design team embarked on a journey to conceptually merge nature's reclamation with architectural decay. The 16,500-square-foot commercial office and headquarters, a poetic testament to the passage of time, alludes to a historic structure with gable forms and exposed wood seemingly lost to the annals of history. It was kind of a foregone conclusion that it was going to be probably wood, and they wanted that softness as a counterpoint to the concrete and everything. So then it was kind of articulating these structural elements as the is the important thing. So, you know, we move the structure to the outside of the building, spend a lot of time thinking about how interfaced with this you know, kind of crisp glass facade, but, you know, really trying to manifest that vision of this sort of decaying barn, you know, where we, where we built part of the building and then had the, you know, this berm of earth come up over the top, you know, like almost like been buried or something, you know, it was just using wood and detailing in a way that was, you know, kind of interesting. I think that, again, you know, I, I really thought that those dynamic forces should be expressed. So like in the barn where the knee braces were really telling the story of those forces, thought, well, it'd be so cool if the, the structure here had some story to tell about, you know, angles and what angles do to kind of brace things from tipping over. I mean, it, there's a certain amount of challenge because it's a somewhat harsh environment on wood over there, but they were really embracing the idea of, of letting it weather. And, you know, they didn't want something to look brand new to start out with. So it was, it, it's a departure, I think, from a, the way a lot of sort of more kind of commercial clients would approach a build. I think there's a sort of hominess that they were wanting. So there's a, a piece of the project, if you look at pictures, that's it's separated from the main building. It's the one that has the earth roof. 
And that is specifically for 30 people to have lunch in. So once a month, they bring the farmers in and, and serve them lunch. So that we, we got to build a 30-foot long table, which was really fun. And this room sort of is this little gem that fit in the landscape, and it's all, all by itself. And it was kind of a neat thing. I thought it sort of told the story of how they feel about the farmers and how they feel about the field people to bring them in, treat them really well, and kind of, I won't say look, put them on display, but put them in this special spot. So, you know, kind of treating each part of the building, it's an L-shaped building, and the main body of the, the main bar is where most of the business takes place, but they have a sales department that are selling the fruit, and they're really, it's almost like a Wall Street kind of situation. They're on the phone, they're kind of yelling, they're like really loud, and so Rick wanted them sort of sequestered off to one side. And so that led to the L shape of the building. And there, you know, we gave them a big glass wall to look into the landscape as well. So I guess what I'm trying to say is just that sort of vision of the the metaphor led to a lot of those decisions about materials. The iconic feature element is the dramatic exoskeleton framed with laminated wood buttresses. Those members are so big that, well, it would have been really wonderful to use just solid timbers you know you just can't get those not in those lengths and sizes and it's not necessarily that all, all that sustainable to do that anyway so we we ended up using glue lamps and because the owner wasn't so excited about seeing the laminations of the glue lamps especially down on the columns if you look at the building you'll see that the big columns come down and then they have like a two by eight on each side so it makes this kind of shape and, and section but mostly that was done well, it, it has two purposes. One, it was done to cover the lamination so that the whole thing doesn't look like a glue lamp. And then secondly, as they go up, they serve a purpose of kind of how the beams or the trusses nest on top of the column. They're kind of a side plate that holds those in place. So, you know, that worked out pretty well because, you know, you don't walk around there going, well, these are all glue lamps. You can tell when you look up and see the trusses, but it looks like, you know, dimensional lumber, you know, that shape, those sort of idea of these paired columns that almost look like a pair of legs walking, you know, that sort of they twist as they go up and down. That was just literally trying things out with pieces of wood and sticks and talking with the engineers, because obviously that's not an easy thing to calculate, you know, like I don't, they, they love trying to figure out how the forces go through there, but they did. And, you know, I think it, there's something kind of dynamic about that that people really like. And again, you know, it's, it's back to that metaphor. The building aesthetic is largely driven by the glue lamb beams and an impressive glass facade, a design decision that would challenge the team. One of the great successes of the project was managing daylight. And because I grew up there, I know that sun is not your friend in Yakima. So, you know, if you think of the diagram of the building, you know, the south face has just little tiny windows in it, smaller windows. The north side is just the big glass wall. And then the L shape where the uh, salespeople are, that faces west, and all the mechanicals put on the west side. So, you know, because west sun is just the worst. Come on, you just don't want west sun. So we turned our back on that, tried to face the other way, and tried to get daylight to do as much of the work as possible. And I think that's one of the things that makes the space feel really good. The other thing is then, well, okay, you got to have some, you know, artificial lighting. you got to have some. So how do we do that? And it really turned out to be a wonderful opportunity. So we did a lot of custom lighting. I got to design a lot of really cool custom fabrications that a local metal worker over there did. 
and the main lighting is done by what we call street lights. And so there are these sort of trees that go up with these arms and they have LED lighting that shines up on the ceiling. Well, the ceiling's up there like 17 feet or something. And so to get the bounce, we were out there at night with the lighting designer kind of trying to tweak the height of these things. Didn't want them too tall, but wanted to get enough light up there. And then we did a, a lot of fabrications for, you know, kind of lamps and brackets and things for lights. So what started out as a real challenge turned out to be kind of a wonderful opportunity to put jewelry on the building. You know, like have these really finely made metal pieces that are kind of sprinkled around the building that provide the, the artificial light. So that was, you know, that was a, a bit of a challenge in this case to get good illumination, you know, without seeing where it's coming from. The glass facade is relieved with accents of natural wood siding inside and out. Now, when it comes to exposed wood, the building science side of me was curious about maintenance and protection. The structural members are coated with uh, waterproofing. The siding is not. So the siding was a barn in Idaho somewhere that they found this barn wood. And we brought it and just put it on and, and it's just being allowed to weather. And it'll probably get pretty dark. It's a very dry environment over there. You know, it's 300 days of sunshine a year, so you don't really get a lot of rain. There is snow, mostly it's sun that works on everything. And so I think there's going to be, you know, to be honest, I think there's going to be a bit of maintenance keeping the structural members protected. I think they'll have to recoat those a, a fair amount. But the roof is a Corten roof. You know, it's kind of a live finish. So, you know, those kind of materials that are in, intended to kind of look like they're decayed, I think they'll do just fine. Inside the building, the spaces are remarkably open and minimal. He didn't want any columns. So that resulted in those big trusses that you see. If you look at the interior images, you'll see that the roof framing is these, they're site-built trusses that are a pair of glue lamps coming together and then kind of a bowstring. Like I think they, they call it a king post in the middle with out of steel and then these rods, these tension rods. And so that allowed us to span the whole width of the building without any columns. So those were not a product. That was something that our engineer designed with all these connections and they're all made out of metal. Really kind of neat. And so, you know, I think that the desire to keep a column free led to these wonderful trusses where you, again, you're really seeing the, the forces at work here. That was very consistent with what was happening outside with these columns and things. So it became a really wonderful, I think, kind of really what makes the building. The other thing is that he didn't want to see any devices. And if you look at the pictures, you will not see any lights in the ceiling. You won't see any smoke detectors. You won't see any devices, no sprinkler heads, nothing. No vents, no ducts. You want to see anything. So... You know, it's this big open volume, and that's because you wanted it that way. And so the building is actually on a raised floor system, one of those pedestal floor systems, and I think four feet below these, you know, tiles that are that lay out the whole floor, and all of the utilities are running underneath. So it's a concrete crawl space and then this raised floor. So we could get almost everything underneath there. And he wanted flexibility, he wanted, you know, to be able to change, move desks around and change the utilities. The other thing is that he would talk about how in their old office, you know, half of the staff wanted the heat on and half of them wanted it off. And this way you can have these little 
diffusers at your desk that you can turn on or off or adjust a little bit. There's a little bit of personal adjustment as the air comes up through the floor, which is, you know, that makes everybody a lot happier. So it was just a, an effort to keep it as clean as possible. I mean, he just wanted, he wanted total tranquility in this space. And so, you know, quiet, we spent a lot of time with acoustical engineers trying to figure out how to just diffuse all the sounds. So it's all carpeted up between the trusses on the roof is a sound deadening board with fabric wrap on it. We put fabric on the cubicles. The only things that we didn't do, we didn't do any kind of sound masking like like white noise. Didn't really want to go that far with it. And we could have raised the cubicles up higher and had more acoustic material in between people. But, you know, that, of course, kind of runs counter to this big, wide open space and being able to see everything. So and then the only rooms that are in there, really, they float like little boxes underneath the big giant roof. There's, you know, conference rooms are just kind of glass boxes and other spaces are just, they float, you know, inside that, that big structure. So it, it does feel very open and free of things. <laughs> These unique components required careful thought on how to execute them in construction. When you're doing something really unique, you know, when you're doing columns that aren't straight up, but they're at an angle and then they're twisted and all that. And the structural, the big, huge structural members are, are you know, they're just one-off designs and they have to be built on site. Nowadays, I think if this was done today, there'd be a lot of digital fabrication. And I know that there's a lot of timber, timber rights that use, you know, modeling and seven axis CNC machines and they can get it to get the whole thing like a puzzle that just pops together on the site you know we didn't our contractor wasn't that wasn't what was happening back in those days and that's just not how they they roll because they don't really do this is one of the few commercial buildings they've ever done but they did a fabulous job so you know how how do we do this and then you know it's kind of like okay we've got all these big huge pieces of wood now how are we going to get them up there and you know how do we brace these wacky things and you know like the big trusses they're so huge they were wondering, do we build them on the ground and try to lift them up? Do we put them up there and not tilt them up? Do we just try to put them to, you know, put them together as individual pieces in place? And, you know, we spent a fair amount of time talking about different ways to do that. They ultimately decided that they would do it, build it in place. And so if you think of this big, you know, gable-shaped volume running, you know, 100 and some feet in, you know, just continuously, you know, they decided that they would build a wall down the middle, a temporary wall to shore this up. And it was a very tall wall. I think it's like 17 feet and it ran the whole length of the building. And what that allowed them to do is to take the, the timbers and set them on this, this wall. Then they would put in the, the big king post and then they would put in the tension rods, these big one inch rods with turnbuckles, right? And they take the tension and the you know the timbers take the compression and that big post you know holds it all together, and then there's intermediate bracing, kind of X bracing that takes the whole bloody thing and keeps it from tipping over. And they said, okay, well this is what we're going to do. So they they put this wall down the middle, they set set these things up, they ran the rods through through the wall, got them all in place, and they said, when we kick this shoring wall out of here. We're going to have you and the structural engineer standing underneath it. <laughs> so do you believe in your design? <laughs> and we want you to stand there when we take this wall out. And we're like, okay, we'll do that. And 
the rods were kind of just hanging there and they hadn't really tuned them yet. You know, you almost tune this thing like a piano, right? Like a bridge or something. And the owner was going to be coming through and they thought it's not, doesn't look good that they're sagging. It might, he might think something's wrong, you know? So they, they said, well, let's just take some of the, let's just flatten them out by turning the turnbuckle. And they just started turning these things. And all of a sudden the whole thing popped up off the temporary wall. So it was already, even with just that little bit of tension in those bottom court members, it was fine. It didn't even need that shoring wall. And so they, they couldn't torture us. <laughs> Company leadership yearned for a home that shunned the industrial clamor, beckoning warmth, eschewing concrete, embracing fluidity, and shielding them from the freeway's din. The project achieves that and more. In fact, while sustainability was not a discussed goal, many of the design decisions that were in pursuit of this desire for refuge and solace were in line with sustainable design practices. Keeping the building cool was a high priority. So that was, I I think that that was probably the biggest thing was trying to make it so that we didn't need much supplemental lighting. We weren't really just dumping all kinds of energy into cooling the building because just by zoning it, the daylight was um, where it needed to be. You know, it's a timber building. I mean, everybody's you know moving to mass timber construction. That wasn't necessarily the goal with this. I think it was more about its feeling as a material to sort of be close to. But we did end up doing almost everything out of wood. We used SIPS panels for the roof. So, you know, it's kind of a very low pitch roof and much of it faces south. So you can imagine how much heat gain that roof would take and keeping it cool. So, you know, there's just a lot of continuous insulation on the roof because of the system. That actually was nice because it was fairly easy to install. It's not a real high building, so they could do it with forklifts and went on real fast. You know, those, I would say those are the biggest moves, trying to, trying to deal with cooling and trying to deal with daylight. In Yakima, I can imagine cooling was a high priority. And how do you, was that part of what drove putting the lunch hall for the farmers? Was that part of the drive of kind of putting it in the berm to keep it cooler? Yes, and it does, you know, because having earth on the roof really does keep it much cooler. And then it's got concrete in the back. So it's, you know, it's got a, a kind of a nice flywheel for the mass back there. It's also because it's separated and it's only used rarely, that little piece can be left unconditioned, you know, or, maybe, or they can let the temperature fluctuate in there. So it allows them to take that extra, I don't know how many square feet out of the equation. I'll tell you one other, you said, just to get into technical things, one of the reasons, another reason why that is set apart is because the owners didn't want sprinklers. And this is a type five building. You know, we built that L shape, the main bar of the building, right to the max of what you can do without it's seventeen thousand five hundred feet or something like that without sprinklers. And so that that little lunchroom is technically a separate building, no touch. So that was part of what drove that as well. But it turned out to be a cool thing. If you see, look at our pictures. There's a picture of a horse up there on top of the building, <laughs> standing on the lunchroom. While the team did a lot of things right with the Washington Fruit and Produce Headquarters, Brett learned a few lessons that he will take into the next project. Well, one thing was I talked a lot about dealing with light and heat and orientation. I thought we did a really good job of that, but we kind of missed a little bit was the east, the morning sun. 
heat up, you know, because in the morning it gets kind of hot in the sales area. And just hadn't taken the morning sun as seriously probably as as we should have. That was a surprise. And then the other thing too is I just think, you know, we the detailing on the some of those wood elements, you maybe a little bit more longevity, you know, we put like uh metal caps on top of all the wood members that are exposed and tried to really cover the end grain in every case and do those things. But, you know, it's probably something that you can't do too good a job of, right? You can't do too good a job of protecting exterior wood. And, you know, I'd like to, as I move forward to these things, think about that a little. And so the Washington Fruit and Produce Headquarters has been deemed a timeless marvel earning local, regional, and national accolades. Amid the industrial agribusiness landscape, it stands as a beacon of organic elegance and enduring vision, an ode to the land it calls home. Before we close out this episode, I always try to gain some additional insight from our guests about the greater industry. I was curious what Brett saw as notable changes in the industry that will have the biggest impact on the profession. Doing things digitally is just changing the way we work day to day. You know, now you, you don't necessarily go out and measure a building anymore. You send out people that have these crazy laser camera things that go in and create, you know, a big huge point cloud or whatever, you know. And then that somehow is translated into a, a model, you know, like a Revit model. And then now we have digital fabrication. So, you know, these models inform other models. And then those models, you know, move the tools around and make the thing. And I feel like that's just going to continue to go crazy. And I, you know, like, are we even going to have a role anymore? Because artificial intelligence is designed to build, you know, <laughs> all these machines will do it and we don't even need to be involved. I don't know. But I find it pretty cool, like what you can do now, like just about anything you can, like dream up, you know, like Washington Fruit. Like I said, if, if we did that now, you know, that those parts would be fabricated by robots. and. And they would have been all, all come out of a, a crazy digital model. And I think that's really cool because, you know, you have, the tools always inform the architecture, right? So when we had the 30, 60, 90 triangle and the 45 triangle, you know, back in the 70s, then that's the only angles you saw in buildings. And now, you know, now whatever your brain can dream up, some machine can make it. And I just, I can't even imagine in 10 years what that's going to be. It just blows my mind to even think about it. And it's exciting. I, I love it. I think it's so cool. So I think that's going to change the way we work a lot. You know, and I think in 10 years, we're still going to be trying to figure out how architecture can help with the whole problem of climate change. You know, we're tr- you know that's a focus. And a lot of people are serious about it and really focused. And that's cool, you know. And But, you know, we're still dealing with kind of a lot of tried and true methods and materials and industries and things that are slow to, you know, it's hard to change. You know, it's hard to change these things. Hard to change how we make concrete and stuff like that or how we move materials. So I think in 10 years, we're still going to be working on that. And hopefully, successfully, (laughs) you know, hopefully we will make make a difference because I think architects want to. I really enjoyed this conversation with Brett. I hope this episode sparks a new idea helps you solve a problem that you've been working through or inspires the mark that you want to leave on this world on your path to world domination. 
for me, it's like I'm pushing the end of my career. You know, we have this firm of 30 to 40 people and they're all really young. And I'm the only old guy, or only old person in, in my personal mission in the last few years of my my career is is to focus on mentorship and to you know leave behind what what I can, both on the technical side and on the design side. I, my passion in architecture is really about the you know creating beauty. It's about proportion and composition and balance and the appropriateness of things in their places and you know, trying to do it sustainably, and, but just creating beauty in a, a world full of a lot of really banal stuff. You asked about Washington fruit and what was my favorite thing. Well, part of my favorite thing is just creating that. And I, I guess that's a little egotistical, but to the extent that it, it, it improves somebody's lives, you know, I feel pretty good about that. So, you know, I just really want to try to lift this up from the inside, you know, kind of take the people that we that I can influence and help them Good Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more, visit rcat.com forward slash podcast to see photos, details, and more related project and product information that we discussed today. While you're there, take a look around rcat.com. For over 30 years, RCAT has been the resource for AEC professionals to find the right products for their project. Try RCAT and see how their tools can save you time and money and help you get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot If you enjoyed the show, you can support us by subscribing, leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and sharing this with your friends. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back to share more stories and lessons learned to help you navigate your next project.